0: next four Dhamma talks, um, Sayadaw and I will be talking about the three universal characteristics, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And this evening we'll begin with our exploration of anicca, impermanence. And beginning with some words from the Buddha, So you should view this fleeting world. A star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And from Crowfoot from the year of 1919 who was a leader of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe. What is life? It's the flash of a firefly in night. It's the breath of buffalo in wintertime. It's the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And from Ryokan a wandering Japanese Zen monk. Our life in this world, to what should I compare it? It's like an echo resounding through the mountain into the empty sky. A Tibetan Lama once told me about the uh, place where he grew up Uh, which was in a very isolated uh, high area in the mountains of Tibet where people have no access to matches and of course there's no electricity and no gas for light and for warmth or for cooking. So for these necessities of life, light, warmth and cooking a fire is necessary And to start a fire without matches every day uh, could become quite a project. It takes some time. So the people in this area, he said, never let their fires go out. All day, every day, they keep a small fire burning. And at night, they then they cover it with just enough ashes so that in the morning there's at least a coal or two to start their day with. He told me that the Buddhist monks in this area practice so deeply with impermanence as their practice that at night they don't try to save any coals because they're so sure that in the morning they might not be alive. And also when they finish their last cup of tea at night they turn their cup over for the same reason, to let the person, the next person, know that they've finished, really finished. So in a sense we could say their practice, part of their practice is every night they prepare to die. They're ready. The deep knowing, the deep living with impermanence is an entryway, uh, a gateway to liberation, a gateway to freeing the mind, to freeing the heart the only thing that we can really really know for sure is that everything changes so seemingly paradoxically the only thing that we can hold on to so to say is the realization the insight the intuitive insight of impermanence anicca The wisdom, the understanding of Anicca is really the bedrock of the Buddha's teaching. And it was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and grew up in search of a path to enlightenment. So just a little bit of this story that we talked about briefly Uh, a few times so far in this retreat. Siddhartha Gautama, which we could say is our Buddha, or Siddhartha Gautama actually was the (laughs) Buddha-to-be, he grew up in very comfortable and protected surroundings in an area of India at the foot of the Himalaya Mountains that's now known as Nepal, seemingly living the good life his father and his mother were king and queen of the Sakyan clan in that area. And at Siddhartha's birth, a local wise man, wise man told his parents that this baby would grow up to be either an exceptionally wise ruler or he would become a renunciate. He would become a great spiritual teacher if he encountered great suffering. Well, his parents, in order to keep him on the kingly track, their preference, uh, set about to try to protect him from encountering suffering. And this is from one of the Buddha's discourses uh, to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Benares. My turban was of silk from Benares, as were my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from the cold, heat, dust, dew, and dirt. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. And during the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them, and I did not once come down from that palace. But all this protection and luxury and sensual pleasure just couldn't keep him. It didn't satisfy. And at one point as a young man, as young people are wont to do, Siddhartha wanted to go out on his own to see what life was like beyond the palace walls. And so he asked his good friend and the chariot driver Chana uh, to take him for a ride through town his father heard of this and it said that he ordered everything and everyone uh, that might cause some disturbance to his son uh, to be taken off the streets, to be taken out of view. But of course as we know uh, it's just not possible to have this kind of control over life. So not long after they were <clears throat> beyond the palace walls Siddhartha saw a person walking on the road with quite a great deal of difficulty. And this person was covered with oozing sores. And he'd never seen anything quite like this before. And so he asked Chana, he said, what is this? What's wrong with this person? And his friend replied, this is a very sick person. We all get sick. You'll get sick. I'll get sick. Your parents will get sick. At some point, everyone gets sick. Siddhartha, it said, had been so protected that he'd never seen such a sick person before. It was disturbing, and so he said, "I want to go home." But he spent a, a pretty restless night that night. But the next morning, he woke up and he wanted to go out again. So out they went down the road, and Siddhartha, not too long as they were after they were out, Siddhartha saw someone moving very slowly bent over, walking with a cane, dry, wrinkled skin, and thin, wispy, gray hair. He'd never seen uh, a sight quite like this, and so he said, what's the matter with this person? And Chana said, this is a very old person. Everyone gets old. You'll get old, your parents will get old, I'll get old, all your friends will get old. Well, again, it was disturbing to young Siddhartha and so he said let's go home. They went home and he spent another restless night but the next morning they he wanted to go again so out they went. As they neared uh, closer to the village Siddhartha saw a group of people all dressed in white and they were crying and wailing and carrying a plank above their head with something on it that was covered with claw and Siddhartha said to Chana What's this? What's going on here? And what is it that they're carrying? And Channa said, This is a funeral procession. And they're carrying a dead body. Everyone dies. I will. You will. Your parents will. Everyone dies. Well, again, Siddhartha was disturbed. And he said, Enough for today. Let's go back home, back to the palace. That night he barely slept. But The next morning he wanted to go out again and so they did and not long after they were out Siddhartha noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth walking down the road and he was walking with a lightness and a a grace and a flow about him bearing a kind of an air of peacefulness and ease and calm And Siddhartha said to Chana, who's that? And Chana said, this man is a renunciate. This man is a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. And Siddhartha responded to his friend Chana, let's go home. This is enough now. It's said that because of Siddhartha's many many lifetimes of development into an extremely sensitive and compassionate human being. The sights that he saw, the four heavenly messengers, as they're called sickness, old age, death, and a, a truth seeking yogi, that these sights struck him very deeply, very profoundly. He was moved by the impermanent and insubstantial nature of life that the first three messengers displayed and also by the obvious suffering that he witnessed in relationship to these first three encounters. And he found himself interested and quite powerfully drawn towards the fourth, what the fourth heavenly messenger represented, seeking peace, seeking freedom, seeking the truth. And again, from one of the Buddha's discourses. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. When an untaught person, subject to aging, to illness and to death, not beyond any of this, sees another who is aged, ill or dead, he or she is often horrified, humiliated and disgusted oblivious to himself or herself that he or she too is subject to aging, illness, and death. And I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, if I were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is old, ill, or dead, that would not be fitting for me. As I noticed this, The healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which is also subject to disease, aging, and death? And the Buddha goes on, monks, there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. And he goes on, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life, as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose, unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, and often quite unconsciously, is the myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and consequential is to experience just one moment of deeply and fully absorbed in the feeling of metta. But he also said that even more powerful and fruitful than this is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in practice where one very clearly knows the uh, direct experience and deep knowing of impermanence, anicca. The seed of liberation, the freedom, freedom from suffering, lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. And again, from the Buddha, what is born will die, what has been gathered will be dispersed, what has been accumulated will be exhausted, what has been built up will collapse and what has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. Everything in this world, everything in this universe, begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form, every form of life, every object, every relationship, every sensation, every thought, every feeling, every mind state, every perception, every experience, every breath. The world of form outside and the world of form within, none of it is static. Our earth feels so solidly here, seems quite permanently in place. Some years ago I received a postcard from a friend that had a really beautiful photograph on the front side of it. And it was uh, a photo of some sand dunes with mountains behind them and looking at this photo was a very pleasant experience. I turned the card over and this was the explanation on the back. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from the dry flats 20 miles west of the park deposited as seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago when an ocean covered this area creating at that time the limestone reef today known as the Guadalupe Mountains approximately 10 to 12 million years ago when this region was uplifted and erosion began the eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains so I turned the card back over to the photo side and uh, looked at it we could say with different eyes Although yet still enjoyed. It was a pleasurable photograph. There was pleasure in viewing it. The places that we live in often appear as though they've forever kind of been the way that they are now. And very often our attitude and our actions reflect this. I teach the Dhamma in Israel every few years, a place where so much strife has been going on for centuries around whose place it is. And at one point I found out that Jerusalem, which is a city built of rock, built on rock, Jerusalem stone, has been destroyed. It feels like one of the most solid cities I've ever been in. But in fact that city has been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the century. With all of the traveling that I've done over the years, there have uh, been times when I've looked up into the sky to uh, find stars and star formations that are familiar, kind of looking for something familiar, kind of like old friends. And this is a little piece about those old friends, we could say, um, partly, uh, that I found in the newspaper some years ago. Our own Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy, but you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. (laughs) (laughs) The most likely scenario, scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It would then take perhaps a hundred million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. Another burst of star formation will occur then, with winds from the shock waves driving out remaining gas and dust. After that, old and new stars will intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. There will be no trace of Earth, save perhaps for the... uh, 1970s-era Pioneer and Voyager probes that are now beyond the solar system. The fireworks aren't due for more than five billion years, long after the sun has burned out and reduced the Earth to a frigid cinder. Five billion years from now, we'll all be dead anyway, said Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. However, he went on to say, if we move out to the stars someday our descendants will certainly witness that from somewhere else in the galaxy. The word, for most of us, the word form implies a solidity, but in reality all forms are forming and unforming coming together and coming apart, constantly and without end. Our world really can't be solidly objectified. Our world isn't a noun, it's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time, we only know this as an abstraction, as a concept. And actually, I think, even more often, we forget it or we ignore it, or we're constantly distracting ourselves from it by accumulating, by planning, by living in and out of memories, by fantasizing, hoping, expecting, coveting, fearing. If we rigidly, if we tightly hold on to how we want the future to be, or even how you want your next sitting to be. All of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then inevitably we have to come to face maybe disappointment or anger or judgment or sadness or grief. And we've missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed what Thich Nhat Hanh calls our appointment with life and we're reinforcing, we're perpetuating the delusion, a false sense of control, a false sense of permanence. So actually, much of the time, we're practicing permanence. Much of the time, we almost desperately, and I don't really think that's an exaggeration at times, we almost desperately want everything to stay as it is, to continue as we know it or to become the way we want it to be. So much so that, in fact, we believe we have control, that things will do what we want them to do. But this belief is really only make-believe, made-up beliefs. As our practice deepens and we begin to see more clearly, we discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality and that the tighter we grasp onto our beliefs, the more limited our life is. I think a good question that you might ask yourself now and then is how often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs with all of their assumptions, sometimes misinformation, varying and changing opinions, and varying and changing ideas about this and that, and then hold on to all of it quite tightly. As we learn to pay a kind of extraordinary attention to our experiences of body and mind and heart, we begin to directly touch to experientially know the constant rapidity of change from the seeming solid substantiality of form to the smaller even minute micro changes in sensations to the seeming substantiality of thoughts as they fly through the mind there's a Tibetan teaching that says All thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. There's a story, actually I heard on NPR some years ago. a true story about a particular uh, physicist who had done a a great deal of research on um, matter and its components, breaking it all down and finding nothing substantial. And it said that at that point he went a little bit crazy and he started wearing huge padded slippers (laughs) everywhere all the time just in case he fell through the floor. In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear? Why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena, change? The beginnings and endings, the births and the deaths. Why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life? Without impermanence, actually, there wouldn't be any life. And some uh, words from Thich Nhat Hanh. he says, if there is no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you'll never have a grain of corn to eat, an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything's possible. And a poem from a man named Red Hawk in relationship to this discussion. He calls it The Wheat Farmer Says Goodbye to His Only Daughter. His heart cracks like parched earth to see her go, but he is not free enough to weep. So he walks with her this evening out in the summer wheat where the stalks beat softly. Suddenly, in his fertile anguish, his heart blooms, and like the last mad king of wild wheat, he grabs his child and twirls her. Through a sea of grain, he whirls her, she holding tight, he boldly dancing in the moonlight. When at last they fall, he is winded and amazed. On his knees, he embraces her, and then she takes her leaving like a wild wheat flower dancing, waving in the softly breathing wind. He watches her go, weaving, moving slowly through the moonlight, and he fingers ripened grain in calloused hand. There's just one thing to do now that his daughter is departed, to harvest cleanly and without regret. In this way he pays homage to the precious seeds he's planted. One blooms by rooting, and one by blowing away. looked at from these perspectives. Anisha is actually an amazing natural marvel. The universal movement of constant change and the cycling of all of the life on this planet and the possibility of immediate presence with the potential joys in this changing process. Not getting caught up, not getting lost and sinking in hopes and fears, attachments, and regrets. We might consider that all of the life on the planet is dying all of the time. In similar volume, for instance, to the new life that brings such incredible beauty, joy, and delight to us each spring, going on right here, right now and the new day, or the new life that greets us each morning when we wake up. And from William Blake, the poet William Blake, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So how might we move into a deeper exploration and acceptance of the changing nature of things? The way of things. Our nature as nature. There are many, many, many doors. Many mirrors in our practice. Many mirrors in our life. At one point it was said that there are 84,000 Dhamma doors to look through. And then maybe walk through. So a very practical example related to our meditation practice. You've been sitting for an hour. A degree of stillness and sweetness and tranquility has developed and is known. And then the thought coming through, oh this is good. I'll just stay here for another hour, maybe even more. And then strong bodily pain, painful sensations in the legs start up. And maybe you continue to cling very tightly to your agenda, your hope, your preference to sit another hour and get through the pain or maybe put up with it or uh, tough it out or find a way to get rid of it or maybe try to ignore it or maybe somehow pretend it's just not there so that you can meet your preference, your goal to sit another hour. This relationship to pain makes it a thing something solid, something very substantial a concept and something to control so that you can continue with what you've chosen to do the uh, very set idea that you think will lead to your awakening, sitting another hour. Or maybe you relate to the pain via the, what I sometimes call, the without mind. A mind not made up, without any preferences, and without the concept of pain. You might simply directly and intimately connect with what is. Seeing all the varying sensations occurring in your leg and noticing them changing, noticing them moving, recognizing that this sit right here, right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static, no preference, no clinging to anything in those moments, including a time frame just being with, seeing and knowing, experience in the midst of the truth of how it is. This is fertile ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. The Dhamma door or the mirror of the changing seasons around us and the changing seasons within us. Many years ago, during a three month uh, retreat, another three month retreat story, uh, that I was sitting at IMS, I was Insight Meditation Society, I was taking uh, a slow walk through the forest out behind the center. And it was during the height of autumn color there in New England. And I was seeing the ground literally carpeted with rich reds and shades of brown and clear yellows and shimmering golds and greens. It was incredible beauty. And I was uh, quite immersed in this experience. And then all of a sudden, a knowing came in. Not through thought, but a deep intuitive knowing that this beauty is death that the world is dying in its unbearable beauty. And after that experience I cried off and on for a couple of days (laughs) not continuously though at times quite deeply. In a sense we could say that I was grieving the loss of the world, feeling my heart breaking and at the same time quite elated. And though still on a conceptual level to some degree, it was an opening, an opening and a release. Soon after this experience, a friend, uh, actually a Buddhist nun friend who was also sitting that retreat, gave me this haiku. When with breaking heart, I realized this world is only a dream. The oak tree looks radiant. This constant cycling, circling, the universal movement of life, light to dark to light to dark, cool air to warm air to cool air to warm, rain, snowstorm, sunshine, cloud cover, rain, snowstorm, sunshine, warm, cold, changing sensations, the movement of the breath in the belly. as we look more closely at our own process through our practice we might begin to see that we've been living under a kind of assumed identity the assumed solidity of our body and thoughts quickly followed along maybe by uh, clinging onto the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions all of the habitual fixations that we live with, believe and call our own, call me, call mine, and think this is who we are. As we practice, we begin to see and to experience more clearly, directly, and more often that things, the phenomena of our life, aren't necessarily as they appear, or at least as they've appeared up to now we begin to experience the whole thing or at least parts of it as process as process happening as changing sensations changing feelings as various changing manifestations of the myriad formations of mind and body each with particular qualities particular flavors textures that are constantly changing in themselves on both gross levels and very subtle levels. And so our relationship to all of the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. The compulsive, addictive, grasping, trying to hold on to the passing show, begins to loosen its strong attraction. Trying to control what is actually uncontrollable, what is actually ungovernable, this ongoing miracle of constant change we call life, it begins to soften as we open our hands, so to say. And we begin to see how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath this impetus to control, the fear of being in and with life, just as it is, begins to relax, to open, and to weaken. The fear begins to fade as we surrender more deeply to the truth of the moment. And so now we're practicing impermanence. When a particular Dharma student uh, that I know began to connect uh, more deeply with the truth of Anicca and the understanding that he didn't have any control over the unfolding of events and as he expressed it he not only saw more honestly and clearly and began to accept that his day never went just as he planned it he also began to see and accept that his aging body was no different than the day he recognized that this too was just simply unfolding undoing according to conditions that he had absolutely no control over one evening in a practice interview he told me that he was beginning his sit each morning before going to work with forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it started (laughs) <laughs> he also has a great sense of humor this guy <laughs> and, and he do, did this and this is his words uh, he did this because as he said it never goes as I plan hope, expect, dream it to be his habit for many years had been one of aversion primarily a stance of irritation, anger, at taking a kind of offensive stance towards things, people, and events not going his way. His early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of the feeling that his body or that the day had or was um, going to do something wrong and that he needed to forgive them for this. Forgiveness was actually coming out of the softening heart of acceptance for how it is. This softening heart was also forgiving itself for the pain that had been experienced for so many years in hardening against how things are, hardening against the truth that things just naturally arise, change and pass away without end. Occasionally over the years people have asked me as maybe you've uh, sometimes asked yourself or asked others who practice why do you practice? And at one point when I was asked this uh, much to my surprise out of my mouth came I'm practicing for my death And so it is. I am uh, practicing for my death, on one level so that if the conditions allow, I'll have the great strength and clarity of concentration and mindfulness to be fully present at what we think of as the big death. I think for most of us, this moment seems like it will be an extraordinary moment and I haven't uh, met it yet, but actually I think it will just be another moment. Another moment with all of the same principles, we could say applying, that we apply to any other moment. Just simply a moment to be with the immediacy of what's occurring. Occurring in the body, the mind, and the heart. A moment like any other moment to just be as you are. A moment to be approached and connected with in a fresh way. A new moment. Beginner's mind. That don't know mind. A moment that's never, never before been experienced. So in the overall perspective of practice, I'm practicing towards the possibility of being present for this moment. But the momentary reality of much of practice in the here and now is with a mindful presence that recognizes and relinquishes the ways that the so-called self keeps recreating and recreating this assumed identity, this delusion of a separate solid self recognizing the habitually learned patterns that support selfing and letting go relinquishing this again and again one way that this could be said is that it's a practice of seeing the death of who I've thought I was and recognizing the truth of who I am there are hundreds thousands, millions of little endings, minute deaths we could say, moment to moment, even just breath to breath, in ways that we could end in ways that we never could have imagined or expected. As practice deepens and matures it gets easier and easier to open Uh, to open to and clearly see, accept, and surrender to this utterly natural phenomena. The assumed solidity, the assumed identity of me, of I, and you, that's so frightening to let go of, is seen through our practice more and more often just as process. Beginning, changing, ending. Again and again, every minute, maybe every second if we're really attentive through each sense door, The acceptance of change, the acceptance of the forming and unforming of the birth and the death is actually really truly the acceptance of life. All the aspects of who we think we are just keep changing, including what we think we want, what we think we need. Our desires that seem so clear and so strong and so right at any given moment, these too can change quite rapidly, as I'm sure you've noticed. As we pay a closer and closer attention, we see that pleasant experiences sometimes change into unpleasant experiences as I talked about um, last night. We see that pleasant and unpleasant can very quickly, very quickly move into likes and dislikes and then rapidly move into seeming needs and sometimes strong rejections. We see that we're momentarily relatively happy. We're momentary, momentarily relatively unhappy. All relative conditioned states of mind totally dependent on a whole set of conditions which are themselves also changing moment to moment to moment. Emotional states of mind for many of us are stickiest experiences. And yet, they too change very, very quickly. So, just a brief, some a brief example: states of anger, irritation, resentment, judgment—all feel so very solid and seem so right, so absolute at times. Anger is a very powerful, very energetic, very passionate energy, with a clear attention into anger. Seeing and knowing and letting go of the self-referencing, the identification, my anger, my righteous anger. Letting go of this contracted self-centered quality that's inherent in anger. Pulling out, we could say, the thread of self. We can then clearly see what's actually taking place on all sides, from all perspectives. There's a clear presence, immediate connection, the possibility then of anger transforming into a mirror-like wisdom, out of which then can spring compassionate, appropriate action, if necessary. as we learn to receive experience with more clarity we begin to see ourselves as well as others with less judgment. We might begin to see that we are to whatever degree also still acting out of and have in the past many times acted out of ignorance, acted out of forgetfulness, acted or maybe more accurately reacted Out of old, conditioned, habituated places of suffering, many times ourselves. And as we begin to see this more clearly, we change and we begin to meet ourselves as well as others with more open hearted clarity and more compassion. The 13th century Zen master Dogen spoke about Buddha nature and its relationship to impermanence and he said this we do not just have Buddha nature we are Buddha nature when things are seen in their fleetingness and ephemerality their impermanence not only is understanding great wisdom born but also the other pillar of deepest insight great compassion impartial care love that may even include one's enemy. probably most of us at times have had quite a strong identification with our face and our body and our body in relationship to how it looked when we were younger. When uh, my mother was in her 80s and 90s, there were times when the two of us would find our st- ourselves standing next to each other in front of a mirror, looking at ourselves and looking at each other. And at one point when we were doing this, uh, my mother said to herself and to me since I was standing right there with her, I see an old woman. It's so strange. And she kept repeating it over and over. It's so strange. It's so strange. I see an old woman. I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. And once, when she was 91 and we were standing in front of the mirror together, she said, I look older than anybody else in the whole world. (laughs) And then she said, It doesn't match how I feel inside. It's so strange. It's so strange, she said again. Is it strange? Is it really strange? Stranger than what? It's just life doing its thing. It's just life being lifey. (laughs) After I gave a talk similar to this in Israel, I was given this poem uh, by an Israeli poet. It's called Such Tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt. Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom, not faults of an earthquake, an airy network, cracks of horror. How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon, bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a net of grieving nerves, fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines so we can withstand it all. Such beauty, such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us, graciously prepare us tell us in whispers, little by little, hour by hour, that they are leaving. Have you ever looked at your face in the mirror for a long time? Really just focused and looked for a while? With a steady Gaze. It keeps changing. It just keeps changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? Again, the mirror of nature as impermanence. And another uh, three-month retreat story, brief story. Uh, I was sitting outside behind the meditation center observing the grasses out there every day in late fall and noticing that the grass was losing its moisture, that it was drying up, losing its color, changing shape changing form, curling over, being very acutely aware of this day by day. Are we different than this? Are we really different than this? What is the Dhamma of grass? No matter how much moisturizer we use, no matter how many vitamins we take or no matter how many energetic walks we take or how much yoga or tai chi we do or no matter how much good healthy food we eat our skin dries out our hair loses its color our hair goes away (laughs) our bodies change shape no matter who we are or how hard we try we just don't stay young This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep and there's nothing we can do about it. And a poem called Fugitive by Liesel Mueller. My life is running away with me. The two of us are in cahoots. I hold still while it paints dark circles under my eyes streaks my hair gray, stuffs pillows under my dress. In each new new room the mirror reassures me I'll not be recognized. I'm learning to travel light, like the juice in the power line. My baggage, swallowed by memory, weighs almost nothing. No one suspects its value. When they knock on my door, badges flashing, I open up. I don't match their description. Wrong room, they say and apologize my life in the corner winks and wipes off my fingerprints and another lots of poetry in this one another poem by Red Hawk and he calls it the time uh, comes when it's easier to die We have to go deeper inside like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we've had enough and it's no longer worth it to get up out of bed. The morning is cold. The gray clouds move in like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That's when we have to go deeper through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding and wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die or their nerves will fail. Women or men will cease to be thrilled with you. And your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You'll still tremble in the leg, go go gray and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. (laughs) Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it's easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you. And then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken. While death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag of bones. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep what in this culture is almost like a secret. With everything changing and aging and such multitudes doing the dying, if we're really truly inclined towards freedom we'll have to give up the notion that change or even death is a catastrophe or detestable or avoidable or even strange. Our practice directs us towards learning directly, experientially about change, the macro and the micro cycling of life, and that we, our body-mind continuum, is not somehow separate, is not separated out from this process. At the age of 18, my closest high school girlfriend and I went to Stratford, Ontario in Canada for a few days to see some Shakespearean plays. And on our way home, we had an automobile accident, and my friend was killed. And it was uh, quite amazing. One minute she was alive and she was driving the car, and we'd had three wonderful days together. And then the next moment she was lying on the highway, dying. And myself with only a few scrapes and bruises on my legs. And I was washing her dying body with water. And then she was just gone. It was an extremely powerful wake-up call for me. And not long after she died, I resolved that I would live life fully every minute. In fact, every second is what I thought because I knew now that it could end in a second. And of course, I've forgotten my resolve many times, but I've also remembered it many times. This experience with its lucid insight into impermanence was really a very big part of what guided me toward spiritual practice and eventually to Buddhist practice although in my 18-year-old self I didn't really um, word it in this way inside my own mind and it's been interesting over the years to see how this resolve to live life fully every moment how how it's unfolded over the years there's been an ongoing letting go of many of the complexities and seeming necessities of what we call normal life. Living life more fully has actually meant living more simply which has allowed me to be more fully with the moments of living. The process of change the beginnings and the endings the births and the deaths. As a a lay practitioner this letting go or renunciation has evolved over the years to be a relinquishment of that which doesn't serve awakening. And as I'm sure many of you in this room have found it's a process that unfolds quite naturally through our practice. Sometimes it's a conscious choice, a decision made between this or that. But very often it's really a matter of Being really present and paying attention and responding to, uh, responding in whatever ways are, are the healthiest and the most appropriate, both for oneself and in relationship to others, which means relinquishing or renouncing some of one's habitual ways of engaging or not engaging, both inwardly and outwardly recognizing and letting go of attachments which doesn't at all mean rejecting the people who are closest to us but rather relating to them in what might be a radically new way. In a brief teaching from Native American Cherokee Feast of Days and this is about autumn Can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We can learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself, continually sheds any excess. The Buddha said that living a single moment seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. It's so valuable because this clear seeing leads to the end of confusion and anguish. Clear and sure insight into Anicca leads to understanding the cause of suffering clearly seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena, knowing very surely the momentariness of all appearances opens the door of insight into the conditional, selfless, empty nature of all things, all phenomena. In our thinking, I see that most of us assume that Permanence provides security and impermanence doesn't. But in actuality, although change may be very difficult at times and quite disturbing at times, at least at first, as soon as we open to it and get to know it more deeply, Anicca can be a very profound inspiration to go deeper into our practice and we also may come to realize that on one level it's truly a gift, a gift of life. What if nothing ever changed? Can you even imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? What an incredible nightmare it would be. No change, no life. In 1985, my house burned down (laughs) to the ground. (laughs) Fortunately, no one was there when it happened, and my three adult sons and I were away uh, visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at the time. A few days after we arrived in Mexico, I received a phone call from a friend who lived down the road from our house in the Michigan woods. And he called to tell me that my house had burned to the ground. Well, my first response was denial. My first response to him was, you're kidding. <laughs> but, uh, of course, who would call a friend, uh, up, call up long distance on Christmas and make such a joke? Uh, so after we, he and I finished our brief conversation, I hung up the phone and I cried. I cried very hard for about 15 minutes. And my mother, who was standing right next to me, didn't ask any questions. She just put her arms around me and held me uh, until I stopped crying. And then after that, my brother, who was also there visiting, we sat down and we talked. And by the end of our two-hour conversation, the fire turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me, didn't have any things to bind me anymore. We could say the spiritual path uh, had burned its way open for me. And of course, as some of you know, uh In Asian countries, it's not at all unusual for people in their 40s or 50s or even 60s whose family responsibilities are essentially uh, finished to go and live the rest of their life as a spiritual life. So to make a long and somewhat involved story short, uh, I ended up going to Asia for about a year and a half and practiced quite ardently, quite diligently and then continued in a similar fashion uh, upon coming back to this country. If it wasn't for that fire, there's a very strong possibility that I wouldn't be here with you now in this way. That huge change was a great gift that in fact is still unwrapping itself. and a haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. (laughs) (laughs) And a teaching from Carlos Castañeda's book, Journey to Ixlan. The thing to do when you are impatient is turn to your left and ask advice of your death an immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Not long before Carlos Castañeda died he and three of his friends were having a lunch together and I'd like to read you just a, a little piece of the discussion Uh, from one of those friends, Michael Ventura, uh, who was at that lunch, uh, wrote, uh, wrote about. He was much thinner, older, obviously ill. But for all his fragility, he seemed much livelier, happier, and even funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, and her child, but still she felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? Answering the woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness and the generosity of manner. Yet a steely thing came into his voice, a tone that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, she should sit in her chair and remember that her child, her husband, and everyone she loved, and herself were going to die. And that they would die in no particular order, unpredictably. Remember this every night, and you'll soon have a spiritual life, said Carlos. Later in the the conversation, the woman asked how she could discipline herself to follow his advice and to follow it deeply, so that it wouldn't be just an exercise. Carlos says, you give yourself a command. On the page, there's no duplicating how he said it. He spoke quietly, but it was as though he suddenly jammed a knife into the tabletop. What's that mean, one of us asked. It means you give yourself a command. And that was that. A command is not a promise. A command is not trying. A command is something that must be obeyed. His tone invokes something deeper than the idea of mere will. His was a call to action. He wasn't talking about mulling or analyzing or wishing. To step on the path, you step on the path. There's no substitute for that. About a year later, the woman who'd asked those questions at our lunch sent a pamphlet that Carlos had requested she send on to me. And one passage goes, Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art, the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they are filled with toughness, but because they're filled with awe. Discipline is the art of feeling awe, says Carlos. And of course, the truth of Anicca must be learned over and over and over again. Every night, we could say. We don't grow in a straight line but really more like ascending and descending and tilting circles. And from my perspective what makes this all bearable is awe. That undefended open-hearted quality we could call awe in relationship to the way of things. As we touch and begin to accept the dance that life is and all of its manifestations, our life begins to take on a peacefulness, a deeper balance, and equanimity and a great appreciation and joy begins to blossom. We live so much more fully in the present moment seeing all the formations uh, and the actions of body, mind and heart and all and the whole dance and play of life around us as constantly continually changing, self-arising, self-liberating, a Tibetan term, but a good one I think, Uh, coming in and going out, forming and unforming, we're more and more and more just with life as it is, with the very natural innate spaciousness and clarity of present moment mindful awareness. As we wake up to the Anicca nature of all phenomena, we less and less experience that feeling of missing anything. Instead, we're really responding to life here and now with an authentic and very bright liveliness as it dances through us and around us. We're really just simply here with the passing show. And from the Buddha, this existence of ours is as transient as the autumn clouds. To watch the birth and death of beings is like looking at the movements of a dance. A lifetime is like a flash of lightning in the sky, rushing by like a torrent down a steep mountain. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's a gateway out of the suffering of self-centered existence. And it's a gateway into the experiential understanding of the truth that there's no independently existing, separate, solid, sustaining anything. It's a gateway into understanding the truth of not self. As the understanding of Anicca deepens, it actually brings a great relief. And a lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load. There's the time and the energy available to live to our heart's content. In closing the talk with a, a poem by Michael Lunig, who's an Australian cartoonist and poet, and with every poem that he writes he draws a little cartoon so I have to describe the cartoon that goes with this one. It's a line drawing of a man who's holding, uh, in his left hand, he's holding a frying pan. His, His left hand is stretched out straight beside him, and in the frying pan is a big black blob of stuff with smoke billowing out of it, and his head is turned and he's looking at it with very wide open eyes. And this is the poem that goes with that cartoon. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. (laughs) Without it, there would be many things that we can't hold on to. As for the things that we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. And let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com